Talks at Afters, where you get access and insights from some of the best in the business. Here at Afters, we are on the land of the Gadigal and the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. And I would like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the extraordinarily rich 60,000 years of continuous culture that we are so fortunate to have here in Australia. Hello, I'm Nell Greenwood, CEO of Afters. And this is the place where you can find insights from some of the leading creatives in our industry. Directors, producers, podcasters, cinematographers, sound designers, screenwriters, radio makers, and more. All talking about how to make great work in complex times. Welcome to Talks at Afters. You know, comedy is a great innovator. That's that's the thing about it. It's a medium that by in, its, in and of itself, it always just moves forward, you know, whereas drama can can stay in the same place for years and years and years if it wants to. Comedy always has to move forward because it, it that's what it does. That's what it is as an animal, you know. So it can go to very, very daring places. Obviously, there are places that you never want to go to as a director, I guess. But just knowing that you have with comedy almost kind of a permission to push things further than you normally would and certainly further than you normally would in the real world, it's kind of an extraordinary spot to be in. Media mentors Denise Erickson talks to two of Australia's top television directors, Kate Dennis and Jonathan Bro. Kate Dennis directed the pilot episode of the US series Run. She has set up television dramas in the US, UK and Australia, including CBS's Tommy, NBC's New Amsterdam, Network 10's Secret and Lies, Offspring, Party Tricks and BBC One's Rescue Me. Her Australian directing work includes Rake, Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, The Secret Life of Us, and Love My Way. Jonathan's television credits include Rosehaven, The Family Law, The End, It's a Date, and Wonderland. He has won two Australian Directors Guild Awards for Best Director Comedy, for his work on Sammy J and Randy in Ricketts Lane, and again for Rosehaven. Focusing on the new wave of drama and comedy hybrids, think Fleabag, Afterlife, Sex Education, they discuss their careers and the projects they're currently working on. So welcome again, Kate and Jonathan. Kate, I'm going to start with you. What led you into this amazing career path? Did you, like, have dolls and toys that you sort of directed when you were a kid? How did it happen? Ah, going back that far, Denise. Oh, um, oh, we haven't got that long, have we? Oh, no, we haven't got that I did have a lot of stuff, toys that I moved around <laughs> you know put on plays and all that sort of you know super eights and all that but I I um you know I went to university did English honours at, at Sydney Uni and I did communications at UTS which then was the poor man's film school compared to afters and uh I think I think there I mainly learned determination because I remember hiring checking out the Nagara for my final student film and going off to make this you know away from Sydney to make the film and the thing was not running to speed so when I got the footage back I had to edit every word on the steam back into the mouth of every actor till 4am <laughs> and I just remember and I was so burning with passion for this project I thought I'm going to make this work so I, I think I learned persistence more than anything at UTS and then you know it came out going oh yeah I'm a filmmaker and then I thought well I'll just crew on one film and check that I know what I'm doing and I did and I discovered that there was a whole bunch of stuff that I did not know and so then I became uh, I was a clapper loader then a focus puller and then a script supervisor on films like Priscilla Queen of the Desert and Babe and you know films overseas like Cliffhanger and um, loads of films 
So I learned on the job a bunch and then I got back into it actually via Ooh, Brian Brown had a show called Twisted Tales and he was an anthology series and he was uh, looking at short films and I'd made a short film and he liked it and gave me one of those apps. And then off the back oh. of that, I guess John Edwards was incredibly supportive. I, that's the story that warms my heart, that learning in the learning in the field and, and starting from scratch. And Jonathan, you did a bit of amateur dramatics in your childhood, I remember. I was, ra- I was raised in a family of amateur theatre people, yeah. I come from a small town in New Zealand and, and my parents were mad keen amateur theatre people. That was kind of, the, you know, most of the memory, that and Catholicism and most of the memories of my childhood. Um, and so I kind of came out of that, but coming from a small town, I had to go elsewhere. I decided about the age of 17 that I wanted to make films. Um, don't quite know why, but it was just something that I really wanted to do. At that stage in New Zealand, there weren't really any proper film schools at all. Ironically, everyone would come over here to AFTRS. But I ended up doing a, a theatre degree um, in Christchurch, um, then ended up in Wellington after that in the early 90s, which was a really great time to be there and just really started trying to make things. Did odd jobs, um, made my first short in when I was 21, I guess, and then made another one a couple of years later, which we had some success with. And, and there was just a whole group of us there at the time who were making, who were making things. Um, and we just spent basically all the time, just if we weren't making something, trying to work out how to make the next one or whatever. Um, and then I did lots of crewing jobs along the way again, like hey, to try and learn things. So I was a location person and I was a runner and I was a very, very bad camera assistant once. Um, ended up ADing a lot to John Toon, actually. He's a very notable cinematographer who's, who a single tear probably still runs down his cheek when he remembers me working for him, I'm sure. Um, and did end up doing a lot of ADing. And then, yeah, just really persevered. Um, trained as an editor during that time as well, um, as, a, as a film bench editor, which was incredibly useful. And then didn't actually get my first professional television directing gig until I was in my early 30s, um, wow. which was, was Dave Gibson at... Um, at Gibson Group in Wellington gave me a set-up gig on a show called The Insider's Guide to Happiness, which um, was a fantastic show that I don't, know, I don't know to this day how it ever got made. because it was No, a I remember reading about that when we were talking about it, and it's still billed as the weirdest television show to ever yeah. hit the screen in New Zealand, and God knows yeah. that's a big claim. <laughs> that is a big claim, and it was it's really fantastic. I mean, it's um, and it was just the most extraordinary start. So from there, oh. um, it just kind of kept on going. Um, and then I came over here about uh, eight years ago, I guess, and oh. been here ever since. Hence my honorary status, <laughs> which I assume is, oh. you know... Don't I did like touch this. a little nerve there, didn't I? Yeah. Okay. Well, you're both, <laughs> you're both well past that sort of, you know, fledgling stage. This is for both of you, really. When you see a script or hear an idea that somebody's pitching you to be involved in, what are the factors that you consider before you want to make the show? How do you decide that, oh, my God, that one's for me, apart from the unemployment button, of course? <laughs> Or apart from where's the goddamn thing shooting and how long do I have that's to always That's yeah. always a big one, as are those ones, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, the unemployment one's always one, you know. Um, I mean, for me, it's always originality. I mean, you you know, you read a lot of scripts and, and you just want to see something where you get to page three and you go, shit, i got to work on this, you know. Um, and I remember that distinctly about Insider's Guide to Happiness, which was the one I just mentioned, that I read, I think, the first two pages written by a guy called Peter Cox, who's just a superb writer, and just literally called Dave Gibson and said, what do I have to do? To work on this day, you know, and I and I think it's just that original. It was the same with the end as well. Just that originality screaming out of it, you know, and it um it just makes you want to get in there because there's a lot of 
you know, a lot of people do the same thing again and again, but when you read yeah. those ones that are just so original, you have to try and get yeah. on board somehow. Yeah. yeah, I think it's very important to be to have your head in the right reading space the first time you read a script because that first read is always the most important. And so, if it if it gets me in the gut, uh, then I'm, uh, it, that gets me over the first hurdle of interest. And then if it's something that I think honestly for me, I need to keep learning. I need to be challenged. And if it's something that really challenges me in terms of an interesting tonal breed or there's something about it that I haven't done before or haven't seen before, and I'm going to be learning, then um, then I'm, I'll probably jump on board. <laughs> Cold, look. Not really inconvenient. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. <laughs> okay, look, let's start with some of the shows. So it's called Run and it's with the woman whose name has to be the hottest name in comedy, Phoebe Waller-Bridges. How did you get involved in that? Ah, uh, I had to pitch for it at HBO and I was I was at the stage, I've already done, at that stage I'd done one pilot um, for, for NBC called New Amsterdam and then so I was in the pilot circuit which was great and you get sent stuff and you decide what you're going to pitch on and this one I just read it and immediately loved it. It was quite an oblique draft, the draft that I read, but it just, I don't know, it just it triggered something in me so I did a big visual pitch uh, and I went in to see, well, I went to meet with everybody at HBO in the comedy department. Then I pitched to Phoebe and Vicky over Zoom because they were in Britain and I was in at E1 uh, and then sent them my, you know, my lookbook and then went and pitched again at HBO with the lookbook. And, and they just, Phoebe and Vicky just fell in love immediately with what I had delivered. It wasn't just images. There were a lot of words in there too and it, we just kind of were on the same track with it. So What's a lookbook for the ignorant among us? Uh, it's just you're just pulling images in terms of from other films and TV shows or or, or uh, photographers and they just, you know, they give an impression of how the show is going to look. And for me, it was, look, it's an HBO show, but it's all set on a train. So I had to have, <laughs> I had to have a real angle on making a visual. They, you know, they work at such a high level there. I had to, I had to sell them something that was visual for the show. Amazing. The train. How on earth did you do it, Kate? Well, that was a decision we had to make very early on, and at first I was thinking, "Well, we'll just we'll just we'll just shoot it on a train," and then you know immediately went, "No, sound wise, that is going to be a nightmare." And what track could we use? And they do go across all of America. And then I thought, "Well, we'll get a carriage and we'll put it on on stage." But no, the damn things are way too heavy. We shot in Toronto, way too heavy to put on stage. And then because I really wanted to shoot the thing in an incredibly intimate uh intimate way I wanted I wanted the camera to be very reactive to the actors but I really really wanted the the work to bring the world in to have the light moving around them and to be part of the moodiness I wanted to feel the sensuality I wanted to feel the, the light in the frame my dream had been to use this LED system where you basically have giant LED panels ringing you know ringing around the train and you pre-shoot all your plates so I pitched that to HBO we, we got that quoted that was going to be about $2 million. So that, that sort of stopped that. But I was dogged that I wanted this vibe because I wanted the interactive light. I wanted to have the carriage. I wanted to build the carriage with all these different metallic surfaces and, 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 and shiny reflective surfaces that could bounce around the, the plates, what you were seeing out there. And so what we did was I hired this fantastic DP and production designer and we reduced the size of the train windows by one inch, the standard Amtrak window, and then we went to the local electrical stores, the hot tip, and bought a lot of LED televisions wow, <laughs> and okay. put one in each window and that way we could afford to do it. So it's exactly the same tech. In fact, it's the same tech as the Mandalorian and we were kind of 
even though it doesn't look like it. And you're thinking, well, that's overkill for half-hour comedy. But, you know, <laughs> but it was, I really wanted, because I, I wanted to go handheld, I didn't want that thing where the camera moves and the plate doesn't. So the camera, the plates are synced to the camera. So if I tilt down on an actor, you'll see tracks. If I tilt up, you'll see sky behind them. It's completely interactive. So we shot the plates. We, we, we hooked onto a carriage going up to uh, uh, up up to the north because uh, up to Maine because I wanted that view out of New York and then we hooked onto another train going across America. We shot certain sections and then I spent forever choosing what was going to be like the view was the mood of the view was a window the color temperature everything whether it was going with light or whether it was calm. Uh, and then we you pixel map it into two hundred and seventy degrees and then the cap computer works as you're shooting to adjust. The perspective of the plate so it's quite it was quite a complex thing to do oh. on essentially a two an intimate two-hander but I just wanted it to feel real I didn't want people distracted going hang on are they on a train where are you know mm-hmm. so that yeah yeah Jonathan, you're looking like you've got some directory questions that you want because well, I know looks, it- I mean it looks amazing it's just it's interesting because this kind of tech is emerging as kind of the thing um and it's it's what's happening is weird at the moment because you know um the standard television is going higher and higher and higher and higher but some things relatively simple things like shooting in a car for example are getting harder and harder and harder to do in any city that you try and do it in i mean actually trying to physically shoot in a car in pretty much any major city in australia uh, let alone in the us is just it's just a nightmare so i have been following this kind of stuff very closely and the mandalorian stuff is just kind of breaking in terms of what is being done so it's essentially mapping in live backgrounds that are completely interactive with your foreground and is kind of vaguely affordable but it looks like you guys did an absolute masterstroke in making it actually affordable yeah we did it before that was you know i first did it two nearly two years ago now we first did it yeah right yeah that. and uh we did it with stargate which is a vfx company out in pasadena and we just we just we developed it as we went so it was a bit you know like tied together as opposed to by the time mandalorian made the whole thing was much more schmick when we did it it, that system had only been used once in a show they shot in ireland i can't remember it was the view from a spaceship or something and it was it wasn't you know the majority of the show so yeah so we're pioneering initially did we have a pucks in the room that were responding to where the camera was in the 3d space and then we refined it we didn't need the pucks anymore and yeah, there were days, like the one day that Amy, wonderful head of comedy from HBO, came to set, we went down for an hour and a half and she was like, what is going on? Like, <laughs> of course. Oh, um, beautiful. How did you sort of make your way into that team or did they just love your plan so much that you, it was an automatic thing? Because you were exec producer on that show too, weren't you? Yeah, so it was across the rest of the episodes too, yeah. So originally they wanted me to do all, I just couldn't do all of them with the kids. It was too much of a time commitment. But so I agreed to do that oversight in in a different way. But uh, look, we just were in sync. Phoebe wasn't around much from that. She was around, she she got the show up with Vicky. They were, so so Vicky originally directed Fleabag, the stage show at the Edinburgh Festival. So they are great mates and have, you know, worked at Soho Theatre together and, you know, know each other incredibly intimately and just very really our best friends in the truest sense. So so she was around to develop it and she was around in prep a couple of times and certainly, you know, Vicky had an open line to just via text, you know, I'm doing, the, you know, that sort of sort of yeah. very casual, intimate sort of stuff. Um, but really for, for, for Vicky it was her first thing. So and Vicky's just an extraordinary creature in that she's so open, she's so permeable and she just totally leads with her humanity. You know, she puts everything on the line and it, I just, I don't know, it just, it just worked. It just worked. I took a very, I took, 
I laid my opinions on the line with my lookbook and then and then it was easy because I put everything out there. I thought, I'll either get, they'll either like this <laughs> or they won't. And so I got lucky. And they did well. It was obviously a good lookbook. <laughs> um, the other, one of the things, and I've watched several episodes of the series now, one of the things I love about it is the sort of fantasy that we all have of going, up. I'm out. I've had enough. But also it's a sort of rom-com in a way. How did you approach the sort of tone of it, not just the logistics, but the tone of something like that? The tone of the show is actually more bizarre than the tone of any show I've ever worked on. Not just the tone of that, like, individual episodes, but the whole thing arcs. It becomes more and more of a thriller as as you go on. And there's a certain point where you're thinking, are the audience going to go with it? And I mean, I don't want to, it's hard to talk about without giving things away. But there's also even, as you know, from the end of Act, episode one what you discover you you know we had to cast with great you know very empathetic uh, female lead so that you wouldn't judge her for her actions which if you watch so you'll know what they are um yes. but to me I was just it was just such a unique blend of mischief and pathos or mischief versus pathos and 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 mystery about the characters versus their raw vulnerability so you're peeling back the layers on these characters you're peeling back the the audience is peeling back the layers on, on them and who they are, and the characters are peeling back the layers on each other. They're hurtling forward at the rate of knots on a train, but meanwhile they're kind of cycling back into their teenage years. There's just so much going on that's sort of conflicting and, and um, contradictory, really. It was a very, for me, it was a very seductive tonal mix because it's nowhere, I'm scary, in a way. Like when it yeah. launched, I was like, let's just do what I And look, it's proved that way. The critics absolutely loved it. And viewers, it splits some, you tend to get tens or ones. So it's, it, which is mm. fine. You know, it's just one of those shows. Yeah. But you, hopefully you keep watching it, wondering if they're running from something or towards each other. It's got this, I don't know, it's push me, pull you. In well, it keeps me coming back. So, you know, like I can't wait to watch the, the rest of it because there is that tension there. It's a lovely mix. Um, okay. Well, I think we might move on to the end, um, which is a show, Jonathan, that you've made that has screened in the UK but is yep. about to screen on Foxtel, I gather. About to screen hopefully on Foxtel. Australia eventually, yeah, which is great. It'll be great to get it out on air here. We shot it um, a year and a half ago on the Gold Coast, actually. Okay. So, um, yes, that's been a while in the works. Um, one of the questions that people were asking, I saw online, is how come a, an Australian show got to show in the UK first and not in Australia? Uh, I couldn't possibly comment. I don't really know, to be honest. <laughs> I won't go uh, there. That's just how it is, yeah. Yeah, I don't. Um, I really don't know. I mean, the topic of it is... Amazing. I mean, the end of life. You couldn't actually go sort of further from a thriller rom-com through to the end of life. So yeah, well, it's about yeah, it's about a sister. You know, it's a it's a comedy about a sister dying with all that that implies. Um, Hilarious. Very. Look, it's hilarious. Um, But it really is because I mean, I think you know, this is what we were talking a bit about this earlier, guys. You know, in terms of how one of the wonderful things about comedy and one of the reasons that I really love working on it is, is it because you can go to the depths, you can go into places that perhaps drama will find it very difficult to talk about. And you can do that quite effortlessly sometimes with comedy because people subconsciously or, or what kind of expect you to be daring, you know? And so I think a, a black comedy, which this one is, was actually the, was the perfect vehicle to talk about a really difficult topic, but actually it turns out when we were making it a topic that absolutely everybody wants to talk about. 
Jonathan, how did you come to make that show? Uh, I was asked to work on it by Rachel Gardner, who's a great um, uh, producer who works at Seesaw. Um, she's Kiwi as well. We actually worked uh, have worked together a lot over the years. I directed the first show she ever produced, actually, so we go a long way back. Um, and she uh, just basically gave me the scripts, um, the first two, I think it was, from memory to look at. Um, and, and they were one of the ones I talked about earlier, where you get about three pages in and you go, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do I have to do to work on this one? So um, the writer was Samantha Strauss, and I think she has a combination of uh, extraordinary technical skills and structural skills and all those things that a writer wants. But also she has this amazing voice where she will just go places that you don't. You know, sometimes I play a game and I'm reading a script as I try and guess what the next line will be and trying to imagine that I'm actually a writer, which I'm not. And her ones would be so far off anything that I imagined that you just, you know, you're, you're really in the in the hands of someone absolutely uh, extraordinary. So, you know, I had those scripts in my hand and it was it was really just a, yes, please, you know, let's, let's go. One of the things that Samantha talks about in that clip is that she likes a warm blanket with her television, which I thought was a beautiful quote. Yeah. How do you achieve that sort of warm blanket as a director when you're making um, a it's series a, about such a tricky subject? It's an interesting thing. It's, um, you know, the environment on set is always really, really important uh, and everyone works in different ways, you know. So, um, you know, I like to keep it very... Uh, we're always in a hurry, you know, we're always in a hurry, no matter what. But I do like to keep it very much that uh, the actors are always in charge of the place, I guess, strange as that might sound, um, is that they kind of feel like it's their set and they can do what they want to do. Obviously, always to a point, but um, they are leading things and we are following, so to speak, um, in a strange kind of way. And so I think you need to foster an environment, particularly in comedy where you need people to be very daring. You need to foster an environment where they can be daring and they feel that they can. Now, I mean, obviously there's going to be points where you know exactly what you need for whatever reasons that they really don't need to concern themselves with. But I think the important thing for me is to is to make a place where people can go where they want to go and not be scolded for it or not feel like they've done the wrong thing or anything like that. And that's the kind of thing which will allow you to make an environment that feels real and feels like people actually care for each other and all those kind of things, which maybe get us that kind of warm blanket environment. And, I mean, it's really interesting that Sam says that because she's obviously she's really completely unafraid to go into some very, very, very difficult places as well um, and go there very directly. Um, and we shot some scenes that were just awful. I mean, we, we had, I think, one week we were shooting, we, we killed four people in four days. You know, oh. so we had four prolonged awful death scenes of different kinds in in four days. You know, actually, it's just, it's appalling even thinking of it now. I remember turning to Francis at one point. I just didn't really want to keep shooting a scene. You know, I said, I just don't like the scene, Kate. She said, yeah, I don't like it either. But, we, you know, we got there in the end. It was There was a real visceralness to it that was very tricky for a lot of us. But I think because we also had the laughs in the script, which were fantastic laughs as well, that there was always kind of this little end in sight, you know, that we could go to these extraordinary depths where people die in terrible ways uh, and then occasionally in beautiful ways as well. I don't want to give anything away. But um, but then we always knew that there might be a laugh somewhere to to leaven things a bit. Um, it was a really fascinating shoot to be yeah. on. I mean, I was, it's a question for both of you, really, because it's about working with actors generally. And I know, of course, it varies according to production, whether it's a comedy or 
drama, Handmaid's Tale, for example. But how? What are your sort of? How do you approach actors? What What's some tips that you might have for people who, who might be interested in knowing how you work with them? <laughs> Kate, do you want to lead off? Who wants, who wants to go first? I mean, I think for me, I'm very similar to you in that sense is that I always want to create a very safe, especially for comedy, but always a very safe space, which yeah. is not judgmental because no, nobody can bring the, the, the truth in them if they feel like they're, they're being judged. And then really as the person who's just witnessing that or receiving that, I, I absolutely have to stay in that state and you have to sort of clear out everything so that you're tapped into your gut. And that's all, honestly, that's all I think all I've learned as I've gone on is that it's all, it's all in your gut. You've got to listen to your gut. But to listen to your gut, you've got to clear out so much stuff when you're directing and time pressures as you talk about. Um, so, yeah, it's all about that safe space. And I think it's also about learning the language of each actor. Every actor uh, thinks and, and differently and, every, and you communicate differently to each person. And it takes a while. You've got to get to know them as people and you've got to open up to them in terms of who you are in order to get to know them as people and then you can learn to speak their language. You can't you can't just take any directorial language and, and, and use it with any actor. It just, it just doesn't yeah. work. That's absolutely right. You do you learn a specific language for each person. Um, and sometimes you get very good at a particular language with one and sometimes you don't. You know, and then you just have to resort to a few technical tricks and other pieces to get through. You know, sometimes you get them all right, which is you know, which is a bit of a rarity. But yeah. I think it's yeah, it's. I mean, that to me is the fascinating part. And the thing is too is that as a director, you're kind of performing as well because you you are kind of having to bring everyone together, and you know, you've got to kind of you do find yourself locking into an actor because you know they need attention, and then just out of the corner of your mouth asking the DP to change the lens or something, you know, so you kind of, you know, because you've got yeah. to keep everything in the air. Um, but, I mean, the, the, the dance of it is the, is the beauty of it and the challenge, you know, and it's and it can be, when it's all working, it can be the most beautiful machine to be a part of when it's all when it's all going right. And I think that's what we're kind of striving for and that's, that's our job to keep managing that yeah. and trying to keep everyone feeling safe and secure. And it's good to imagine yourself in the actor's shoes once in a while particularly when you're asking them to do something incredibly difficult. You just have to, to think about how potentially demeaning or embarrassing or, or just yeah. revealing that might be. It's, um, you know, I, I'm filled with respect, especially for comedians. I'm just hugely filled with respect for them every time I work with them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, even with some, a show like Run, I had two actors who operate very, very differently. But Donald hmm. is more in his head. He's like a Ferrari. You dial in this way and dial in that way. Merit is just, she just brings her soul up. <laughs> onto the screen. It's very organic. And she'll say, I don't know exactly how it's going to come out, but then it just comes out. So they're so different and it's balancing, yeah. balancing what you see, which kind of works for their, you yeah. know, for the sexual yeah. Yeah. It's so great. And I mean, everything works into it too. So then, you know, you may go in with a visual style, but then when you discover what your performers are like, you may have to be constantly tweaking that because the visual style you decided on for a start isn't quite capturing it. So then you've got to work it, you know, you've yeah. got to try and morph it into yeah. something else as you're going. So, yeah. you know, that's what I love about it. It's just, it's, it's every day. It's just, it's a constant, you know, divination of things. Yeah. So, and you just and hope you're rolling like when the good stuff is happening. That's all. Other choices like working out whether they're, you know, they're, they're hitting it, they usually hit it by take three or take one and whether you want to be close <laughs> and go wide or, 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 you know, all that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, it's... Um, can't cross you, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's right. I mean, can we start, you know, do we start like this or do we, you know, whatever, or do you do you do a watch and go, wow, that's, that's actually the scene, let's move yeah. on. Yeah. You know, there's sometimes, there's the old joke that the director is what you're actually paid for is to go, we got it, let's move on, you know, and so... <laughs> Well, that when you make that decision as well, so you actually, and I mean that all depends on how you work. If you're in the American system, sometimes you're just kind of harvesting 
shots for other people who are going to put it together. Sometimes it's much more well, editorial. So it's we all, are, you know, yeah, we are going to talk about the American system in just a tick, but we just got a question from the audience who's and they're asking who's sending you scripts, agents, or do you get them directly from writers or producers? And how do you decide what you want to read? Oh, the onslaught. Um, I, you get most in America. Well, I've been living in America for the last five years, so I get them all from my Australian agent, but mainly from American agents and from my manager. Uh, since I've got back to Australia, I've, all my friends are also <laughs> so it's now a double load. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. you just end up annoying people by working out which ones you're going to, you know. <laughs> and then the art of saying no becomes that's an art, and uh, yeah, you try not to lose friends. And uh, but you know, I, I also in America, it is it's it's there's just so much going on there that you have to rely on your. If your agent says, you know what, I don't think this is your taste, don't bother. They'll send you a, a, a just little prices and you and you and you'll just and you'll just pass. But yeah, it's it's, it's a tough fun. one, isn't it? Yeah, it's a tough Jonathan? one. Yeah, I mean, my my stuff's generally manager based, but also because I work a lot with with stand ups, and I've done a number of shows with stand ups going into their first show. Sometimes it's just a direct. Contact their manager will get in touch with me. I had someone call me the other day saying we've got someone we think could, could do a great show and then you just kind of start talking about it. And that process can often take several years, you know, so you basically get in at the ground floor, so to speak, with someone and um, and then they might make a show in two or three years' time that you become part of. So that's a different that's a different one again. But, yeah, generally, it, it's the same with Kate. It's, it, generally, it's a manager-based conduit. What attracted you to the Heathers, Um Kate, because it's one hell of a show. <laughs> I was I was asked to meet for the pilot of it, which Leslie Headland ended up doing, and so I think I met them for the pilot. And 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 look, J- uh, Jason McAuliffe, who wrote it, is is very, very sharp and very deliciously camp, and he just really appealed to me and uh, as a human being. And I hadn't read beyond the pilot at the at the stage, and it, where it goes on, it goes to a place. <laughs> Uh, which are, you know, any polarised audiences and honestly because of the what was going on on screen with, um, you know, yes, school well, violence uh, was actually pulled, pulled yeah. altogether. So, yes, and I think on that note, let's I didn't know that it was going to go that direction. I will point <laughs> out. <laughs> no, I didn't think you sat there and thought, oh, my God, it would be so awesome to work on a show that gets Even pulled. that I was living that, given that someone was found outside our kids' middle school with five loaded semi-automatic weapons down in Studio City. Oh, oh. Sorry, Ashton, this is it's not the venue to talk about this. But, uh, yeah, it was, oh. yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Whoa, so it was an academic, actually, yeah. Okay, huge, enormous. Did you have an enormous budget for that, Kate? I've got to ask that first up. It, well, they were generous with the budget because it was Paramount Television's first uh, big project so yes and also that you know they had the they had the ip of the film behind <laughs> i love that of all the work you could have chosen mindy project you could have chosen uh glow but no you've chosen heathers okay <laughs> off you go <laughs> so i chose it because it raises all sorts of issues like in fact it sort of left me left me breathless watching it and reading about it afterwards <laughs> But A, you are remaking this cult classic, which immediately is going to set people teeth on edge. Like, why are you doing this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then he inverts it. He takes the classic, you know, he makes the Heathers, you've got a body positive Heather, a genderqueer Heather and a, you know, biracial lesbian Heather. 
Um, but what he what the mistake he made was he left Veronica and JD as white, and and in the traditional Heather's landscape, they're the heroes. But in Jason, the creator's mind, he's kind of his affinity is with the Heathers. So he's like, but they're our heroes. But most most Heathers aficionados are like, no, our heroes are Veronica and JD. So that's where he lost. That's where he lost. He got a lot of flack about that on top of on top of the gun stuff. I think, you know, and I think what he was going for was not, he wasn't dealing so much with the original Heathers in some ways. What the critique he wanted to mount was that it was about the superficiality of today's society. And about managing your brand, you know, on the on, on your phone, and and how these kids, these teenagers, can be expected to uh, to build an, an identity in, in in these times, and how the, oh, people often just jump on the bandwagon of the, of the latest, you know, the latest grief about this or whatever it is, things they don't actually care about. They jump on that bandwagon. In, in order to define themselves. And though that was what interested him and kind of what interested me about it, but really it kind of left the the, the original Heather's fans a little off to one side and, and they were up in arms. Yeah, they were. But, I mean, part of the reason I, they were, I read all their posts, as a whole. Yeah, yeah. But, but actually part of the reason I chose it too is that the subject matter is incredibly intense, below all of those layers. Um, and I think that it does sort of talk a, a lot to what comedy can do. And one of the questions that came through just a tick ago that I'm just going to ask you both because it works well for this. How do you frame comedy and tragedy differently? And the Heathers is a case in point there because it's sort of a blend of both, isn't it? Well, I, I can only talk about comedy frames and when they work and when they don't. I, let me, can I just go back to Run for a second? Because Run was a case in point in that I would occasionally frame up uh, a classic comedy frame with people's heads popping in or, you know, lateral crosses and then someone doubling back. And, and really I just use that as, as like a spice, like an accent, because if you do that too often, you're too aware of the camera. Now, I didn't set up the style for Heather's, but Leslie, Leslie had that kind of classic teen iconic sort of graphic sort of framing with slow-mo the three of them walking down the corridor mm -hmm. and the big, you know close-ups of their bling rings and uh so she, she did that from the outset so you're aware of it but the show itself was much more self-aware Jason's writing is much more self-aware so I think if it's a question about that style of framing I can contribute that if um is that a literal framing question or just a... Yeah, what, do they mean actually physically, like how do you oh, visually frame tragedy? Well, I, I took it as a more intellectual framing, but maybe it was. Oh, my God. Oh, you answer it as you see fit. Intellectual it's a framing? Yeah, it's a, yeah. I, don't I know. think it's we'll a, just stick to the, the actual camera one. framing, that one. Because, I mean, I guess my question to come back to why I chose that clip was... How far can you push comedy in your mind? I mean, that's an extreme example, but what what's your bottom line in terms of what sort of comedy you wouldn't do? If it's really grafted to character and you really and you see and, and you see the consequences of some of those actions, the problem with a show like that is that, that nobody suffers any consequences for their horrific actions. So that's that's a lot for an audience to to surmount. For me, it always comes back to character, it comes back to playing it for truth and all that. And that this was a different style of comedy. His writing, his dialogue, is, it has fantastic rhythms in it. It's, um, you know, it reminded me of when I worked on Priscilla and Steph, Stefan's early sort of writing. I, I, I loved, the, it was just so brave what he was trying to do, what he was trying to say. And I was dealing with teenagers who were constantly on their phone and everything resonated for me. But 
but then it went somewhere. <laughs> yeah. You know, comedy is a great innovator. That's that's the thing about it. It's a medium that by it, in, its, in and of itself, it always just moves forward, you know, whereas drama can can stay in the same place for years and years and years if it wants to. Comedy always has to move forward because it, it, it just, that's what it does. That's what it is as an animal, you know. So it can go to very, very daring places. Obviously, there are places that you never want to go to as a director, I guess. But just knowing that you have with comedy almost kind of a permission to push things further than you normally would and certainly further than you normally would in the real world, it's kind of an extraordinary spot yeah. to be in to be able to find yourself there but yeah the innovation and also you find the people that make it are innovators and they're always pushing the edges and they're often very complicated people in themselves you know and yeah. um, that just adds to the interest of it all and Kate is that why you're I mean you've got a glorious career in drama as well is that what sort of takes you between genres that ability to play more perhaps with comedy or yeah I think I mean for me I, it was hard moving to the US. I didn't want to get stuck in the box. I, I moved there with a show called Secrets and Lies, which was a thriller. I didn't want to get stuck just in the thriller box. And I am just drawn, always drawn to, to, to character. So whether it's comedy or or drama. And drama had in the past given me more of a cinematic, because I came through the camera department, gave me more of a cinematic landscape to work in. But increasingly now comedy offers that landscape as well because you get more money yeah. and time. And, and, yeah, and absolutely, yeah. Like, I mean, I was watching Tim Minchin's Upright. It's so cinematic. It's so fantastic. brilliantly shot. Yeah, fantastic show, yeah. yeah. I think the days are over here. Yeah, you know, I guess comedy came as the poor cousin out of sketch or something and it was always considered to be cheaper and all those kind of things. And hopefully, touch wood, those days are kind of behind us because I think that, that, that things, and this is what's interesting with the serious comedy genre is that things are kind of blending together, you know, yeah. which I think is getting really, really interesting. And, of course, we're all watching each other's work. It's so competitive at the moment. You know, because you just want to see what people have done and go, well, can we do a little bit better than that? You know, and I think I think it's just it's in an extraordinary space at the moment. We're all just trying to to do yeah. that with everything that we do. You know, it's pretty it's pretty fun. And look at the production values also that Tony Mac got with Tony McNamara got with the the great. You know, which oh, that's it's, it's so eye watering. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, yeah. You just yeah. it just looks so fantastic. Yeah, so I think um, it's a fascinating time to be doing yeah. it. Um, now, I am told that, yes, it definitely was a camera framing question, so apologies oh. to the person who asked it. I was a bit thick on that one, but anyway, we got there. Um, another question, which I'm thinking I might be better on, is how do you cope emotionally with shooting scenes like dying scenes or really sad stuff? It's, um, yeah, look, I don't know. I have no particular special coping mechanisms. Um Oh, yeah, I don't know. We've had some, I mean, you know, sometimes if you're very clever and very far-sighted, you tend to try and schedule them for certain times of day or stuff like that so you can do one and then go home and actually just kind of decompress or something like that. Again, sometimes you never know quite how bad or how good they're going to get. Um, and the thing about directing a TV show is you're just relentlessly moving forward. So a lot of the time you don't even have time to think about it, perhaps until until maybe the end. So I don't have any particular words of advice i mean if you have a very collegial environment in the crew it's it's a cliche thing but it is a very family thing you know and so i think everyone kind of looks after each other if if things get um get hard emotionally um yeah it's uh, but there is always that relentless forward motion which in a way saves you a little bit um, and, it, you know, and you do know that you're making a work of fiction, even if it's a very, very visceral thing that you're doing, which can sometimes save your brain a wee bit as well. 
I don't know about you, Kate. What do you think? Have you got any special tricks? I was just listening to you thinking, I, I haven't done a lot of sensitive dying. I've done a lot of violent Fear the Walking I've, Dead I've stuff. I've done a lot dying. of sensitive dying. <laughs> <laughs> You've done just a lot of insensitive dying. Is that what you... Yeah. yeah. She just blows up. She just shoots them and blows them up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> more blood, more blood. Is, you know. <laughs> oh. no. Yeah. No, I think everything's blows up. Okay, so uh, this is a question to both of you again from the audience. How do you, you know, you both talk about having a very collegiate set and, a, and a, you know, a play, creating a place where people are comfortable working. How do you actually do that in practice? You talked about doing it, but how do you do that? I think, well, I would say it's about giving everybody some ownership. I think it's, it needs to be about true collaboration. And I think the more that you do this job, the more you learn uh, to listen. Really, and it's the same for, for great actors. The, the 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 really great actors know how to listen. And yeah. uh, so, if everybody if everybody has a little bit of ownership and what's going on, and they really care, they they give they give a thousand percent. If you shut people down all the time or talk over them, they stop they stop caring. And and you can't make that magic. And the magic is what happens in the cracks of. You know, like it shouldn't be two plus two equals four. It should be way more than that. If you you know if you've got the right people around you. Yeah, I agree. Look, you know, sometimes it's seen that being on set is kind of, it's just a space for execution of something that you've planned, but it's got to be a space for invention as well. And that's the tricky balance when it gets very busy, which it often is. And so, and you do have to listen to people and sometimes you have to leave, but sometimes you just have to get out of the way. And it's important to know when those moments are. Yeah. And also, you know, you don't always have a choice of team that you work with. Um, if you do, it's great. But I mean, a lot of the time you don't. And so I think building the relationships with your key people is really, really crucial, particularly the DP, particularly the first ADs as well, who often get forgotten in the mix, but they're an absolutely crucial part of it. And if you have a great first AD, boy, you know you've got a great one because yeah. it can be night and day. So I think as long as people know, and you know, Kate said earlier, you do have to reveal something of yourself as well. I think that's very important. Um, that you um, that you have experience that you can draw on. So if someone asks you a curly question, you can say, well, you know, like I was just thinking of a case with Tony Barry actually on the end who I asked him to do something he really, really didn't want to do. Um, and as with Tony, he challenged me on it, of course. And, um, and I'd had to think about it before and I had an example out of my own life where I said, this is why I want you to do this. He was like, all right, mate. Yeah, 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 okay. So, so you know, you do have to you do have to draw on your own experience and, and also just not, you can't, you know, there's, a, there's this great view that directors are somehow dictatorial. It's the furthest thing from the truth because what you're actually doing is marshalling people. Mm. You're not forcing people against their will or something. You're actually just getting all the greatness that you have in the room and on the set to go in a similar direction. Mm. And, um, you know, that's, uh, that's part of the joy. Mastery of being a director. Here's another question. Um, are you better off, Rather than des describing what you're doing as a hybrid drama comedy, um, are you better off defining it as either a drama or a comedy? So to get financiers to understand the tone, mm, that's a that's a really it's a really tough one. I mean, you know, the genre I, I heard it called this particular genre called serious comedy a few years ago, and that's the one I really like because it kind of it kind of sums up. You know, we always used to be tortured with comedy drama or calling them dramedies the most appalling term ever invented. Um, as to what you do to get funding, that's the completely unanswerable question. If you think it's, 
I mean, you know, Kate was talking earlier about her lookbook that she did. And I mean, you know, we always pitch for projects as well. I think having a good solid lookbook where you can draw on other examples of what your tone might be. Is it like Jim Jarmusch? Is it like such and such? Is it like Phoebe? Is it, you know, then those kind of things are useful rather than perhaps the term that you use. Those, okay. you know, things that you can latch onto. I don't know about you, Kate, but that would seem more useful, I guess. True. But also you've got to think about who you're pitching it to. You're pitching it into one department at, at a, at a mm. network and you're usually going to have to choose either the comedy. In, in the US, you're pitching into comedy, which means you're in the half-hour for, format or, or you're in the one hour. Now there are some one-hour comedies coming through, but more unusual. Uh, so you think about who you're pitching. Really, I would say, you know what I would say <laughs> in terms of getting shows up? Know who the commissioning, who, who's commissioning it. Know what their taste is. It's all down to taste. And these days, the other tip is, well, certainly in the US, and I presume it's a little bit the same here now, is that is that people love to know that there's, they want to understand the authorship. They want to understand personally why you are committed to this project. Yeah. What is it? What is it? What does it trigger in you? Why? Why you? Why this project? And why this project now? Those things are much more important, I think, than the categorization. Oh, it's true, and it's very explicit as well. In terms of, I had one come in a few months ago where it was something about someone having an organ donation, and they literally said, "Have you? You know, if you've had an organ donation or something like that, you know, maybe you could be the person to direct this show." They actually wanted that yeah, director yeah. connect what you were doing which right. is kind of ridiculous but but that's yeah. especially in the american you know world that's that's kind of what happens yeah well i think also with run i'm remembering now that i had done another meeting with with the comedy department at hbo where i'd gone off on a tangent and it might have been because of the gunman found out something kids school where i said i'm sick of violence and i'd done so much violence at that point you know, on american screens that i kept trying to get out of it i don't want to do this show oh no mm. that'd be good my agent was so pcb so you know, and I was saying, I just can't. I just, I just, what about desire? We never see female desire. And I went on this whole word just came out of my mouth. <laughs> and that was the end of that I'm like, oh, okay, I don't know what that's going to get me. But actually, <laughs> I look back months later, I went back in for a run. I'm like, well, there's a lot of female desire in that, in that show. And, yes. you know, you yes. yeah. speak to yeah, your yeah, passion. Yeah. You're always going to be in a stronger position if you do so. Yeah, it's true. Wow. Okay. I mean, one of the delights of COVID is that I get to talk to people like you because you're not an American. You're not, you know, busy on shows. So I want to know what you're what you're working on when we are released from this. And then I'm going to just chuck in a few of the final questions. So, Jonathan, you what are you working on at the moment that was curtailed? Um, a couple of things. Oh, yeah, there's the one that was curtailed. Yeah, there's a new show called East and West, which is a new serious comedy for the ABC uh, about a, an international celebrity chef who spectacular flames out and then returns home to Adelaide with his tail between his legs and tries to start a new restaurant there at Adelaide Hills. So that one, we got one week into prep on that and then got sent home. So that was um, that was deeply disappointing. So that one's ticking away and hopefully we'll be back on, fingers crossed, we'll be back on deck on that one in about a month. Um, but we it'll be at least 10 weeks till we get shooting. So we're just talking about quarantines at the moment and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it has been interesting. I mean, I don't know about you, Kate, but during this time, I think a lot of us have madly just been trying to pitch things and get things into development as well because it's actually been a bit of a rare breather yeah. to get things going. So I'm also trying to, I'm also working, because I, I recently produced a documentary about a stand-up comedian and was kind of looking at the lack of stuff that's made in the documentary sphere on comedians, you know, which is remarkable, particularly in a town like Melbourne. So I'm working on a, trying to get a documentary series about comedians going at the moment as well, which is... Um, I think the right idea really... and the right cities yeah. to do it, yeah. Well, it's it, it's the one of the greatest comedy cities in the world, yeah, so that's that's ticking away at the moment as well. But it's actually been remarkably busy because it's, we've just been like, oh, you know, let's get some... <laughs> Let's get yeah. some stuff going for the stuff time because, you know, we just don't get these breaks. So um, no. it's kind of been great. Kate, you've had your wings clipped in a spectacular 
second away staying in Australia. You're and trapped, not... <laughs> trapped in Australia. <laughs> I think worse places to be trapped, I might tell you. I'm very happy to have my wings clipped right now. Thank you. Uh, I, I've been, I was lucky enough to to do all the final posts, you know, the final mixes and everything on run remotely. It was all set up here and it's, I was doing it for my study with the dog and that was very luxurious. Mm-hmm. And that probably finished about, uh, well, it's still, you know, pressy sort of stuff trails on, but about a month ago. And then I've been developing, uh, you know, a few projects that I probably can't go into. I've also signed a deal with an overall deal with HBO. So I'm sort of committed to them for the next year, uh, whether that's, whether Run gets a season two or whether it's another HBO show, I don't know. I've taken one of my films and turned it into a television format because I just I'm finally reading the writing on the wall. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 That's the one thing. The COVID's COVID's just you know the final, well, at least the temporary final nail. If that makes any sense for the theatrical, it's um, it's uh, everything's gone onto onto yeah. a TV focus. So that's been really interesting just to witness it. It's just kind of just. Fallen off a cliff, theatrical really. Still one I hope um, we can do, which is all that I am from the Anna Funder book. We've got Vanessa Redgrave and Vicky Creeps, and I'm not sure who's playing that other role. It's been roundabout, but it's. Um, so that's, oh, yeah, that would be amazing. That would be fantastic, yeah. 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 All right, we've only got a few minutes left, so I'm going to rock into a couple of questions here. Um, would love to know what prep and research you do to direct certain themes, e.g. youth and queerness. Do you rely on heavily, heavily on the writers? But what research of your own do you do as directors? Go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have a, I have an anecdote in the in the chamber for this one actually. Um, well, not really. No, I mean in the end we had we had a, a character who was uh, a, a trans teenager, female to male trans um, teenager, um, and we had uh, and then the person who ends up kind of that um, he ends up in a relationship with is genderqueer and so I just did a lot of learning basically I just did a lot of listening and a lot of learning and being schooled a lot by a 17 year old and what I should know and what I shouldn't know so it goes back to exactly what Kate was saying before is you, you just simply listen you know you simply listen to anything that you can hear um, about it and you just be eternally open-minded throw all your preconceptions out um, you know, get rid of any prejudices that you have and just see what's in front of you and then work out how to how to move forward with what you need to do. So it is the great thing about the job. I mean, I know, uh, you know, a million things about things that I never knew that I would know things about because it simply had to be something for a show and I had to go deep and learn about it. So I think you just, you have to learn a lot and you just have to be endlessly open-minded. About, yeah, you know, about podcasts, on, so. anything. I mean, there's so much material on YouTube. There's so much material. Tracking people down and meeting them in person, you know. Yeah, I yeah. know for gender yeah. think I've got relatives I can talk to. You know, you just, yeah. you just do. I mean, even on a show I did that a long, long time ago called Party Tricks, which was a political thing, you know, it was Daniel Andrews who showed me around Parliament and showed me all sorts mm. of little mm. things, where naughty things had happened and, you know, it was like, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you, you can get access. Uh, to people if you a lot of people a lot of people are so bemused or you know mystified by television that they'll talk to you and and um, yeah. you know Josh Frydenberg yeah. gave me two and a half hours and I was researching the political realm yeah. Uh, yeah. What do you pick up in those things too is that, you know, doing a face-to-face is so great or having tours is so great because you just get to see the strange little details, which you would yeah. never get if you were just, you know, if you were just supposing it or looking at YouTube clips or stuff. You get to see strange things that people do or the, where someone carries their phone or just odd things which can then kick off on other things and, and, and you're being there in person. And you're right. I mean, people will, 
take you to places that no one else would go simply because you say you're making a TV show about it, you know. And so it's, um, again, yeah. that's all part of it, you know, to locations that people just don't get to go to. You've been listening to Talks at Afters, an Australian film, television and radio school podcast. Please subscribe for more episodes. For show notes and other resources, head to afters.edu.au. That's afters.edu.au.